I'm Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great and enjoying some end of summer weather as we get ready to transition into the fall. So today's episode, I'm going to talk about a topic I've mentioned in previous episodes, and that is the rise of white supremacist terrorism in the United States. Quite a disturbing topic, something that we have really seen a lot of in the news, some pretty high-profile attacks in the last months and years, and that has really increased in the Trump era. And so I have the perfect guest to speak about this issue with, and that is Jason Blazakis. He is uh, the director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies for over 10 years, from 2008 to 2018. He served as a director of the Counterterrorism Finance and Designations Office at the Bureau of Counterterrorism in the U.S. Department of State. Before that, he had other government jobs um, in law enforcement-related and counterterrorism-related work. He also has uh, some private consulting work in threat mitigation and geopolitical risk. So he is just an incredible wealth of knowledge, incredibly articulate, and really exactly the type of person that we want on the case in this era where we really see this threat growing. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we touch on a lot of the the key issues here in terms of technology and the role of politics and particularly the right wing and the Republican Party's kind of role in, if not directly enabling this terrorism, certainly taking a soft stance and not doing everything in their power to stop it because of the the, the sad fact that many of these people have affinity for Trump and also are, are part of the right-wing base. So this is, a, I think, a really far-ranging and excellent primer for those of you who want to learn more about this incredibly important topic. So without further ado, I bring you Jason Blazakis. Okay, so I am here with Jason Blazakis. Jason, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. And unfortunately, we don't have a super happy topic to talk about, but it is an important one. That's right. And so let's just start with some introductory material and just kind of, if you could describe your background and how you got into studying terrorism. Sure. So I I guess for me, I was always interested in national security, foreign policy issues, but I was living in New York City during 9-11, actually. And was with very few people who was probably both in New York City and Washington, D.C. on 9-11. I was a student at Columbia, um, but at the same time working in Washington, D.C., so taking Amtrak back and forth. And early in the morning on 9-11, I was on my way on Amtrak, got a call from a friend telling me what had happened to the Twin Towers. People were unsure what had really occurred um, other than a couple of aircraft went in to them. And then when I got to Union Station in Washington, that's around the time American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon. So for me, that was a really transformative experience. Um, It made me want to go back into the government. I had been in the government previously. 
and want me to made me want to study terrorism to understand how terrorists operate, how they finance their operations. So long story short, um, I eventually made it to the Counterterrorism Bureau at the State Department. I was there from 2008 to 2018, where I was the director of an office called the Office of Counterterrorism Finance and Designations. And that's where I really got steeped into sort of the, the milieu of studying terrorists um, and trying to implement counterterrorism policies. So that's a, that's a little bit about my background. Excellent. Well, a little side note, I grew up in New York City and actually it was not in New York when 9-11 when occurred, but I had had my... Uh, high school prom in the Windows in the World restaurant on the top of the World Trade Center. And I still have a, a famous picture of, or being famous, when the top of the World Trade Center was open in the 70s. There's a picture on Christmas Eve, my family, we went, and then we have these Polaroids on being on top of the World Trade Center. So I had a lot of kind of memories for it, and I actually know some people who died in, in that attack. So... Uh, so yeah, so we, we both have those kind of New York, yeah. that New York connection. Yeah. So uh, you know, today though we're actually not going to be talking about predominantly Muslim terrorism, no. jihadi terrorism. But the more what I think is, and you'll you'll obviously tell me if I'm correct in my layperson assessment, which is right wing kind of white nationalist terrorism. And I, I wanted to just get your your current assessment of the the threat of right wing terrorism and particularly white nationalist terrorism in the U.S. So I think the threat posed by um, radical right-wing terrorism, uh, particularly in the form of white supremacist terrorism, is gripping the, the nation in, in ways that we haven't seen for quite some time. It's not to say that this is a new phenomenon. Far-right radical-wing um, terrorism has been around for quite some time. 1995, of course, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma City bombing, killing hundreds of individuals. The Kuka Klan was founded in the 1860s by Nathan Bedford Forrest. So this idea of white supremacy shaped America as we know it today. But since um, the last few years, um, since the beginning of really um, 2016, I think the threat has become more profound. And I think statistically speaking, if you were to look at the University of Maryland's um, global terrorism database, if you were to look at the U.S. government's own reporting through the General um, Accountability Office, you'd see that um, post 9-11, post the Al-Qaeda attack, um, radical right-wing terrorists have killed more people in the United States, within the borders of the continental United States, um, than Islamist motivated terrorists. So if you, if you look at those statistics and you think about some of the recent acts that have occurred, say, let's just go back to 2018 into 2019, the Robert Bauer synagogue, um, Pittsburgh shooting, you look at the recent El Paso shooting. You look at the uh, shooting in our own backyard here in California in Gilroy. Uh, all of those are, are markers and indications of uh, a potent radical um, far-right threat. Yeah, and one thing, I guess, maybe for some clarity here, obviously the, the right-wing terrorists are actually kind of directly motivated and you can trace their kind of, you know, their, you know, their anger or their kind of some sense that America is changing and they want to do something about it violently. But then just as a lay person, I also just noticed this is a lot of white men doing mass shootings, even if it's not a right wing ideology. And how, how do you separate out that data? So when you go through the University of Maryland data, they're going to put in um, individuals associated with um, specific right wing ideologies. So they'll go through the records, they'll go through open source press and just try to understand the motivations of those individuals. Because yeah, there are most certainly a lot of 
white guys who are killing people with guns every day that may not be animated by an ideology. But then if you actually go into the details, you look at the, the manifesto of individuals like the El Paso shooter, and I prefer not to use their names when I, I try to avoid that, just not to give them notoriety. But if you look at his uh, manifesto, you'll see that he's inspired by other um, American mass killers, um, like the South Carolina church shooter, um, like the uh, individual in Norway. Um, here I'll use his name, Anders Breivik, just because a uh, U.S. audience may not be as familiar with him. Um, and, and clearly they're, they're embracing um, a certain ideology where um, quite often they feel it's as if they're being replaced by people of a different color, that somehow their opportunities are limited because of the skin tone that they have and because of immigration. And I think immigration is one of the great drivers of, of some of these ideological um, threats and then, unfortunately, the violent manifestations that occur thereafter, like with the El Paso shooting, because he was clearly targeting Hispanics, um, what he called a quote-unquote Hispanic invasion. And the Gilroy shooter um, is, again, targeting individuals of, of a Hispanic background, or so he um, wrote. So I think we see these general trends. And to me, that's how you, you can separate a, a random um, white guy, I hate to use the, the term going postal, but going postal versus an individual who's motivated by um, some kind of ideology. Got it. No, that, that makes sense. So do you think from the perspective of a lay person, it would be fair to say that the, you know, the, the threat of white nationalist terrorism, right wing terrorism is a greater threat for the average American citizen than, than jihadi terrorism? Absolutely. If you if you look at the statistics again, um, post 9-11, more Americans have been killed by white supremacist motivated um, ideologues than Islamist um, driven individuals like, for instance, Omar Mateen in the Orlando nightclub. That's an example of an individual who was inspired by the Islamic State, carried out that attack, horrific attack. But you, you look at that versus the scale of other attacks that have transpired post the Pulse nightclub. Um, you, you add those up and it's a pretty significant um, number of individuals that have been killed by white supremacists versus Islamist groups. Um, and I, I tend to gravitate towards the University of Maryland data set. Um, but if you look at the U.S. government's own data set um, through GAO reporting, um, it's also quite clear that the statistics bear out that for a U.S. person, you're more likely to kill by a white supremacist than, say, an individual inspired by the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. And even if you look at ADL statistics, where anti-defamation league, people will say, well, ADL is skewed in how they view the world, but they actually keep really good stats on this. And in 2018, I think the stat was essentially um, all deaths carried or all deaths of individuals in the United States subject to a sort of ideologically driven um, acts of t terror um, were killed 97% of the time by an individual driven by white supremacy. That's pretty startling when you look at the numbers. Yeah, that is. I didn't quite realize it was that stark. And given the severity, what I've read a lot of articles about, which seemed quite troubling, is that the federal government has not taken this threat to the level of seriousness that you would, you know, associate with numbers like that in terms of both resources, money, personnel. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, first, whether you agree with that assessment and then what you might make of it? Yeah, I can I can talk a lot about that. Uh, I, I agree with that assessment that the U.S. government's not um, putting in enough resources commensurate to the threat posed by white supremacists. So foundationally, I think we're on the same page. The next question is, um, what does that really mean um, in terms of resources? That means, I think, both human resources and how uh, the resources of agencies are allocated financially. 
Um, from a human resource perspective, the FBI has had a series of individuals um, ranging from Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, to lower level senior officials within the FBI testifying on this issue um, in a, a series of hearings that various House committees held. And they're holding them at the House level because the Democrats happen to control the House and they're more energized about this challenge than the Senate, unfortunately. And I, I think that's another question that we should look into, the political optics of this. But if you look at the FBI, they were saying essentially that they have um, about a 50-50 split on the number of open cases they have. By that, I mean they have 50% of their open cases looking at Islamist, Salafi, jihadist terrorists, and they have 50% of their cases looking at white supremacists. But they don't have that same allocation in terms of special agents devoted to each subset of the threat. They have essentially a 80-20 split, 80-20 split in the sense of 80% of FBI special agents are looking at the challenge of Islamist-oriented terrorism. And you have probably about 20% of the special agents dedicated to counterterrorism looking at the white supremacy threat. So the first thing I think we need to do is really look at those resources and see if they should be reallocated. And statistically, if you look at what we just talked about in terms of the number of attacks carried out by white supremacists, I think it would make sense to reallocate um, the FBI's resources. Secondarily, the other agency that has responsibility for coping with the uh, domestic terrorism threat is, of course, the Department of Homeland Security. Unfortunately, the Trump administration has closed some of the offices within DHS, uh, intelligence offices that are charged with analyzing that threat, um, analyzing threat information and disseminating it to state and local law enforcement officials. I think that office needs to be stood up again. Um, I think the DHS needs to spend more resources at looking at that threat. So I think that's, that's certainly a part of it. Another part of it is um, there are just not sufficient laws as well, and they need to be adjusted too. Great, great. Well, I want to get into some of the the law side, yep. maybe a little later on, okay. but let's let's get into the political optics of this right now, because there does seem to, be, seem to be a kind of a stark contrast where you have the Trump administration, members of the Republican Party in the Senate in particular, but kind of maybe downplaying this to the extent that it doesn't serve them politically. And the sad reality is whether people want to acknowledge it or not, that a lot of the white supremacist groups, if not our registered Republicans, are certainly kind of siding ideologically with a lot of what's coming out of the Trump administration. And there seems to be, and I'll like your take on this, a sense of we don't want to go so hard on these groups because in some sense they're at least a potent, if small, but potent part of our political base. And, and that seems quite troubling to think that one of our major political parties would be you know, downplaying a, a terrorist threat because of political considerations. And I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. So I, I have two perspectives on that. I think one perspective is I, I think this challenge with respect to the Republican Party predates the president. I think if you go back and look at some reports that the Department of Homeland Security, that office I mentioned before, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis produced on the threat posed by white supremacists, gosh, nearly a decade ago, um, Congress people like John Boehner, for instance, stood up and were expressing outrage about that report because it was deemed far-right terrorism. This, the term itself from the Republican Party was perceived to be loaded, um, and then they pushed back against that report. And I think ever since then, the Republican Party has sadly been um, up in arms about labeling something um, sort of on this ideological spectrum from right to left. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think that has led to some um, inertia as it relates to 
trying to come up with some policies that can solve these challenges. Um, more contemporaneously, I would say, uh, President Trump has, unfortunately, I, I don't want to say he has enabled, I think that's perhaps too strong a word, but I think in some ways he's emboldened some of these individuals by feeling that they can speak out and carry out acts of violence in ways that they feel they may have some political cover to do that they perhaps didn't have previous to his reelection. I say that, or his election, um, let's hope it's not reelection from my perspective. Um, uh, I, I'd say that has occurred, I think, in some ways um, more because when you have attacks like the Bowers attack um, in the Pittsburgh synagogue or the Caesar Sayoc um, attempt at um, pipe bombings of uh, political um, officials that were Democrats that he disagreed with. And this is a guy who drove around in a van that had Trump stinkers and MAGA stickers all over his van. Um, and then you have the only time when the president actually, and then you, of course you have the famous both sides argument in Charlottesville to go back to 2017 when Heather Heyer was killed by um, white supremacists. You have all these things that the president had a chance to, to go out and say, um, I condemn white supremacy oriented terrorism, but he was reluctant to do so. Um, and he didn't do that until after the El Paso attack. And his response while condemning it was a built milk toast. He, he didn't feel like he was invested in condemning it. So that leads to the question of why. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, there, there are people probably in the White House um, who are making political calculations, um, sadly, that if we were to condemn this kind of behavior too strongly, um, it will um, upset our base. And I think um, that's unfortunate thinking. I think that's short-sighted thinking. I think that's a kind of thinking that leads to divisiveness within the country. Um, but I, I think there is this political element to it, unfortunately, that is driving the administration, um, not so much um, in terms of um, supporting actively these acts, because I don't think that's happening, but um, kind of looking the other way. I think that's that's what's happening. Yeah, so I guess I'd like to follow up on that a, a little bit, because I think what you're saying, while obviously you're saying it in a very kind of scholarly and, and, and diplomatic way, I think is pretty charged if we get a little deeper into it, right? Which is... And I also I think it's very important that you said that this stuff predates Trump and it predates Trump by, by many, many Absolutely. decades. And so let's talk about this, right, that the right wing or Republicans have have kind of a long history of almost coddling some of these militia groups, being soft on the militia groups, because there's this kind of rah, rah, we're against the big government that kind of goes with conservative ideology. It seems a little contradictory, but it's really kind of almost a natural fit. And, and again, I agree with you. I don't think it would be fair as a critic of the president to say that he's out there, you know, cheering on white supremacist violence. But I'll say a couple things. He, he certainly is making, you know, appeals to violence at his rallies in, in pretty direct ways against the media, against individuals at his rallies. And then when you say, you know, to turn the other way, when your charge of the federal government is to protect the citizens of the United States and you're t looking the other way for people who are carrying out violence, that's, in my view, as a layperson, close to treasonous activity. And so, you know, that's your job is to protect Americans. And if there are people out there killing Americans and you say, well, that's part of my political base, I don't want to rile them up. That seems pretty damning to me. So I'm curious your take on that. Yeah. So I... I would say, um, if I'm going to come up with a, a one-liner, I'd say Trump's not the cheerleader, but he has a lot of cheerleaders uh, within the far-right community. 
And if you look at publications run by neo-Nazi groups, like if you look at the so-called publication, The Daily Stormer, an individual like Andrew Anglin who runs it, um, you see he's out there actually saying, like, this is good for us. It's good for us to have a president like President Trump. And, and that's what I mean by he has his cheerleaders. And unfortunately, they're on the, the very radical right and fringes of American society. Um, and I'd agree with you in the sense that um, the, the president is not acting as a president for all Americans. He's acting like a president for the Americans who have put him into power. And he sees that as his best bet for retaining power in the next election. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think that it is um, divisive. I think it's uh, highly problematic. And it has led to um, individuals feeling like they are emboldened enough to step out and carry out some deplorable activity. Um, in terms of the Republican Party coddling um, some of these groups over time, um, I, th I think the federal government has, and, and I, I'm a big fan of the various amendments, don't get me wrong, but I think the federal government has hid behind the First Amendment in the context of um, overzealous protection of freedom of speech when individuals, from my perspective, have likely crossed the line to um, representing a um, clear um, and present threat. And I think those individuals have used rhetoric that would be indicative of um, individuals who are going beyond mere, say, incitement, but it looks like it could be something that would actually occur. And um, the Supreme Court has ruled that if it looks like something's going to happen, that kind of speech is not protected. And then, of course, um, when it comes to the Second Amendment um, and gun rights, I, I think it's unfortunate that um, that coddling of the very powerful lobbies in the United States uh, is represented by the um, NRA, for instance, could be part of the reason why you see that coddling. And, and I think in the end, who is getting the money from the NRAs of the world? Um, I, I think it's, by and large, very conservative Republicans. And when you see a horrific act of violence with a semi-automatic weapon, um, we see some good words, but we see no actions. Um, we see no results. And I think part of that is because uh, the spigot of, of money running to some conservative Republicans is something they want to keep on. And if they actually try to do something about the Second Amendment, um, that could be turned off pretty quickly and that could have some kind of um, negative effect for their possible reelection. So I think part of this is animated by um, the, the gun lobby, quite frankly, and um, hiding behind some of the protections of the First Amendment. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and so, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of these issues in a little more detail, but just to kind of try to make sure that I present some some fairness here, you know, we're, we're focusing on right-wing terrorism, but there certainly are some left-wing groups that I think, you know, might represent real domestic terrorist threats. And I, and, and I, and I, I want to get your assessment of this because I, I see a lot of focus of police groups and the federal government infiltrating a lot of these left-wing groups, whether it's kind of Black Lives Matter, or et cetera. And again, I don't see them engaging in really overt forms of, of, of violence. Maybe that's changing with the Antifa movement. I'm, I'm not sure. But I guess I, I want to get your sense of where on in this threat do left wing groups, you know, represent a true you know, menace to, to, to civilians? Yeah, not to belabor the point with statistics, because I know they can be super boring for your listeners. But I would say if you were to look at the statistics, um, of the various threats in the United States, um, Islamist jihadist threats, far-right threats, left-wing threats, the, the least uh, uh, powerful threat is the 
threat currently posed by the far left. And that's not to say that the far left of the United States doesn't have a checkered history in the context of terrorism. You look at groups like the Weather, the Weathermen. Um, you look at groups um, overseas, uh, particularly in Europe, like the Bader Meinhof Gang, the Italian Red Brigades. Um, you have uh, a history, both United States and internationally, of, of very um, strong um, leftist terrorist organizations operating who have killed civilians. But if you were to look at the statistics, and I think of the groups you recently mentioned that that may be the most problematic from the far left sense is Antifa for sure. Um, if you look at the number of individuals killed by Antifa in the United States, if you're looking at these databases, the number would be zero. And from my perspective, while I could never condone the acts of Antifa and street violence that they carry out, um, beating people up um, with with sticks, with with rods, with their fists, um, throwing milkshakes at individuals who purport to be journalists, like Andy No, for instance, um, that doesn't equate to the level of violence that you're seeing from the far right. So, from my perspective, when I think about threats, I think about capability and intent, and I think um, they're lacking in both right now to represent a threat to the um, masses. Um, but again, I just want to emphasize that I'm, I'm not condoning Antifa's activities. I think they're problematic. And in some ways, I think they may be driving individuals who may be sitting on that fence um, that may be more moderate and pushing them into a conservative camp in some ways. And I think that's problematic and, and perhaps adding some fuel to the to the fire um, on the right wing side of the house. And I think that's the last thing we need is to have um, more fuel to that fire. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you're you know, you're coming with the statistics at the end of the day, you know, even if, like you said, getting punched in the face or a milkshake or whatever is bad, you know, the, the, the statistics on who's actually being murdered and, and, you know, gunned down are clear and and it's good to get that 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 clarity. So so let's let's move on then to back to the topic of right wing terrorism, which is clearly the, you know, the, the, the most, you know, prominent threat right now. And what do you think is the role of social media and kind of helping to recruit and fan the flames. And then to the extent that it is a problem, what can we do about it? Yeah. So I'll say that the ability for the radical right to propagate messages most certainly predates social media. Um, you know, back, back in the 1980s, you have radical right groups, um, for instance, one group associated with the murder of a, a Denver disc jockey by the name of Alan Berg, um, that that organization actually put out um, a, a newspaper called the Primrose Cattle Gazette paper and tried to recruit individuals through uh, more traditional means. And, and that's pretty common with respect to the radical right. That evolved over time where you started seeing these, these groups started using something called LibertyNet, um, sort of a, a, a network of computers for them to communicate. Um, that also predates social media. This is kind of in the mid-1980s. Um, but social media has unfortunately allowed some of these disparate groups on the radical right, some that may not have ever been really connected otherwise, to connect with one another. You may have sovereign citizens with white supremacist leanings. Not all sovereign citizen groups are white supremacists, of course, but um, they are most certainly on the radical right. But then you'll have, on the other hand, KKK, a white supremacist group. Um, 
social media allows these entities to, to bond. They allow neo-Nazis to, to bond um, and to share a, a storyboard. Um, and also, it allows individuals overseas to connect with some of the purveyors of hate in the United States um, on the radical right as well. And I think the social media um, has a, a heavy responsibility um, to um, play, um, particularly as it relates to mainstream um, entities who, for instance, may not be upholding their own community and safety guidelines and standards um, that they have for their community users. And by not upholding those standards, it allows for individuals to um, listen, to read, um, and listen in the context of, say, a YouTube video or watch, um, or read in the context of tweets um, about these perspectives that are so warped and hateful. Um, so I think social media has a, a lot to do with it. I think they need to do better. Um, some are starting to slowly implement better policies against trying to target individuals who are spouting white supremacist ideology, ideology that may um, call on individuals to carry out acts of violence. Um, they were really good in 2014 and 2015 of taking down terrorist content associated with groups like the Islamic State. Um, and I'd like to see them to take a, a similar model and approach in terms of trying to take down content um, that may be on their platforms spewed by white supremacists. So social media is very important for pushing the message and not just for like that message propagating in and of itself, but it's also important for recruitment. It's also important for financing. It may be important for exchanging information as it relates to operational tradecraft that could lead to a specific act of violence. Yeah, yeah. I think that those all make a lot of sense. And it makes me think about some recent information I've read about where some of these algorithms that the social media companies are starting to use to kind of identify white supremacy, neo-Nazi behavior, in their kind of search, they come up with a lot of Republican politicians, both at the state and federal level. And so again, we have this bleeding of the bases where algorithms looking for white supremacy come up with you know, a Republican state senator in te Texas or something. And then, of course, we see a big pushback from Trump on down. Oh, the social media is out to get us. How do we how do we undo this this yes yard you know this big you know ball of yarn when the Republican Party and white supremacy are kind of blending together and 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 how do you know shouldn't they have to be forced to take a stand even if it's gonna take out you know the the social media accounts of a few you know state senators or even maybe Congress people yeah so it's an important question so the one thing I'd say is just based on my experience I think there's been an over reliance amongst Silicon Valley companies to rely on their algorithms and they need to do a better job in spending uh, more resources and time to having humans evaluate some of that content before it's pulled down, because then um, if they don't do that, you'll see this outrage, this outcry, which then leads to the Republicans um, sort of getting sort of stuck in the sand, feeling like unwilling to take action and, and point the, the finger at social media. In some cases, because the algorithms are, are not always perfect, um, it, it unfortunately gives the, the politicians on the, the right side of the Republican Party, the very conservative elements, um, some actually uh, um, ability to, to have a, a quasi-legitimate argument against these companies. And, and that leads to angst by those companies then to, to do more. Um, so from my perspective, it's going to require a marrying of algorithms with human resources in ways that 
that unfortunately do affect the bottom line because that's expensive. But um, this is a big problem. Um, we have a lot of people getting killed um, and they need to invest in those resources just as they invest it. And it brought in experts um, from academia and the government to help them with the Islamic State problem when they were propagating um, their material online to encourage people to go fight in Syria. Um, so they spent the money there. Now they need to spend the money to hire some experts who know a little bit about white supremacy to help them with that challenge so they can direct the algorithms in a more efficient and effective manner. Yeah, it seems like a reasonable ask. Shouldn't definitely, be that hard. They got a lot of money in they Silicon Valley. They sure do. Mark Zuckerberg, if you're listening. Uh, so yeah, Adam Serwer at The Atlantic, who's been really writing a lot of, I think, really insightful pieces on you know white supremacy and white nationalism, much more broadly than the terrorist threat, but just kind of in society. He has a recent article that basically says the way to, to defeat this is the right has to take the lead because these are their bedfellows and this is their group and the left and 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 people you know who are associated with the left fighting white supremacy can only go so far if they don't clean up their own house and i'm kind of curious just your take on on on, on that well i I'll, I'll probably oversimplify this but you know, who who's in the white house a republican who controls the senate the republicans who controls the house democrats um, so if anything is going to get done politically to solve this challenge, it's going to be incumbent upon the Republicans to actually put forward some ideas that they find palatable to try to counter the threat. So I would generally agree with his analysis that the Republicans have the lead. They have to take charge. And if they don't, we're going to just be spinning our wheels um, and stuck in the sand. Uh, so um, and I think they will have the. Unfortunately, the authentic voice to communicate with their base in a way that may allow um, those that are Republicans to support that new Republican policy if they were to push it. So I think from that perspective, they have the authentic voice that's more likely to resonate um, within the base um, than, say, the Democrats. I don't think there's anything someone like Nancy Pelosi can say that's really going to animate people to want to tackle this challenge from the Republican perspective. So I think the onus is on the Republicans. Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. Well, let's let's get back to the to the law because you had mentioned some things about laws that you you think need changing, and you know I've read a, a lot about this, and and I think there's some things changing to the the, the terrorism laws to include white supremacist terrorism, uh, you know, and, and maybe you, you you've obviously know more of the details than I do. What I've also heard is a pushback from some li civil libertarian people on the left saying that sounds good. We want to you know we want to treat white supremacist terrorism. At, take it seriously. We don't want it to just be, you know, Islamic terrorism, but we've got to be careful what we wish for because a lot of these laws that are, that seem good in practice, you know, in theory, when in practice, always tend to come down harder on the left, on minority communities, and that we want to be very, very careful about expanding kind of counterterrorism law because of the, you know, the history since 9-11, uh, where, how it's been used. And I'm curious, curious your thoughts on that. I think I think there there is good reason for civil libertarians, um, First Amendment enthusiasts to be somewhat um, skeptical about the idea of supporting additional domestic terrorism laws. Um, you look at programs like Coin Intel Pro um, that were very clearly designed to um, spy on individuals like Martin Luther King, um, amongst other people, to to have that reticence. 
But from my perspective, um, right now, given the current threat landscape, it's time to have that conversation. It's time for Congress to put together carefully crafted laws that criminalize acts of domestic terrorism. In, in that sense, um, I think it's important for listeners to understand that the United States government does have a definition of domestic terrorism, but there aren't any acts that are criminalized associated with that definition. So one very basic first step would be to criminalize acts, um, for instance, um, using a, uh, a handgun to target Hispanics um, that are in an effort to sort of change the political calculus of this country. Um, to change the demographic landscape of this country, to me, um, represents a, a quintessential um, definition of, of terrorism. You have an individual carrying out discriminate act of violence against a specific subset of individuals in an effort to change the political element or to force the government to take certain policies. So from my perspective, um, not criminalizing those acts of terrorism, not being able to say, um, um, prosecute Christopher Hassan, the Coast Guard um, individual, the active member of the Coast Guard who was arrested for drugs and weapons charges, but was not charged for terrorism because um, there was no terrorism um, statute that they could cite his acts and his other acts were essentially um, compiling weapons, um, having in his evidence, in his hands, essentially his own target list of politicians um, most of whom were Democrats and media officials who he wanted to target and kill. And the FBI had their their hands tied and they couldn't charge him for um, an act of terrorism or the planning of an act of terrorism. So I think that's a really specific case where criminalizing acts would allow for individuals to, to be um, taken off the streets. I think it'd be important for any law that is actually passed in the domestic terrorism space to have a, a regular review or check of that law to ensure that federal agencies over not overstepping their bounds. So um, there are civil um, protection, civil liberty um, boards that exist within the federal government. Um, they should be watching and evaluating how any domestic terrorism law is being um, implemented to ensure that um, minority groups aren't being inappropriately targeted by virtue of that law. So I think there there is a way to add nuance to this that could preserve civil liberties to ensure that individuals aren't targeted for political means or reasons. And you think the the existing mechanisms for the legal framework have enough safe safeguards in them that you you would feel confident that they they could be effective? There there are a couple of bills that have been introduced. Um, Adam Schiff has introduced a bill. Um, the senator from Arizona, um, McSally, a Republican, ironically, has introduced a bill. Um, both of them have introduced bills that um, include, um, from my perspective, the criminalization of acts that would be hard to um, say that that's an act by an individual who is not engaged in violence. Um, and I think the shift bill specifically actually builds in civil liberty protection review processes as well. So I think the shift bill in particular is quite good in trying to um, um, ensure that people aren't having essentially their civil liberties abridged or that this new potential domestic terrorism law or tool isn't being used in a way um, for political purposes. So uh, an example of that would be, for instance, if I were to draft a bill that singled out one group and said that that group should be sanctioned as a terrorist group like Senator Cruz has done with Antifa, that would be, I think, inappropriate. When you're looking at um, thinking about the threat, you need to think about that threat more broadly than specific to one group, whether it's a group on the left or on the right. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm glad that Adam Schiff is on the case on that. I've been following a lot of his work, obviously, on the intelligence committees, and yep. he's always impressed me. Uh, so not surprising that he's at the, fo- at the front of this. So, so maybe to end the conversation, you know, for, for the lay audience here, again, people who don't have, have the time or resources to really be experts in this, but what, what should they be thinking about, looking at, and, and if, if they do get a chance to kind of engage the political process and this is an important issue to them, what do you think should be at the top of their agenda? That's a great question. So a lot of what we talked about things that need to happen to make Americans safer, I think is going to be very difficult to do in this political climate um, because I think there's a lot of reticence by the Republican Party, sadly, to put measures in place that will seriously deal with this challenge. So what happens when people um, are not making decisions on the Hill? Um, I think that there are a few things people can do. I think read up about your your Congress people's various positions on these issues, um, see where they stand on it, um, and then if they're in your home district and you find that they're not um, looking at this issue seriously enough, go to those town hall meetings and ask questions right to your members of Congress. And ultimately, if none of that works, um, protest. I think that's a very important form to demonstrate concern to members of Congress. And I think um, we've had too many um, attacks carried out by individuals like the El Paso shooter and Robert Bowers and synagogue shootings that he carried out um, to, to let this slip away. I think to, to create change, it's going to require um, civil action. Um, I think um, relying on politicians alone is a recipe for non-action. Yeah, well, I think that's a, a good way to end this. And, uh, you know, Jason, I think your work is, is outstanding and I've been really like following it and, and hope that, you, you know, you, you stay on the case. I enjoyed it, Jason. Nice to see you. And um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Good luck with your work. All right. Thank you. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason. I think it was really informative. And even if a depressing topic, it is better to be informed than not. And Jason obviously gave his suggestions at the end there of what you know we should do as citizens to stay a, a, on top of this topic and stay abreast of what's going on. I would just like to add for my antidote for today is, you know, the right wing and, you know, the Fox News and the right wing media pushes this fear of the other. And the other, of course, is always brown people. It's Muslims, it's Mexicans, it's Asians. And the reality is that the white, far right, white supremacist terrorism is the biggest threat for terrorism in the United States. And so we just need to keep that front and center that the right wing's narrative is false and we need to push back against it. And, you know, if you have your crazy uncles or you have your, you know, on Facebook, the, you know, the right wingers pushing this kind of fear of the, the brown people, other, just push back with the facts, which is that, you know, terrorism committed by white men with a racist ideology is the biggest domestic terrorism threat in the United States send them the stats, send them the statistics, and, uh, and keep people you know, true to, to reality here. And don't let the right wing paint this false narrative because it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous narrative both for you know, the victims of this terrorism and also just for the cohesion of this society. We really need to, to fight back against this, these falsehoods. And again, really thankful for Jason to be on the case here. He's a great scholar and practitioner, and it gives me hope to have, you know, that we can deal with this issue when people as, uh, as intelligent and articulate as him are, 
are really studying this and, and trying to advocate for sensible policy. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher. Rate the podcast, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care. Thank you.